Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Today's extract is from Chindit by Richard Road James. Chapter 4. Across the Irrawaddy. The sun rose very hot next morning and the dry deciduous jungle was breathless. We sorted ourselves out and collected our kit. No more sorties were to fly into Chowringi as Wingate was nervous about its vulnerability and Broadway was taking 110 sorties a night. Our other two battalions, the Cameronians and the King's Own, were flying into Broadway and joining us later. Meanwhile, our first objective was the Irrawaddy, which lay between us and our operational area. We set off and halted at midday near a filthy pool. This, we were told, was the only water in the area. We accepted it and, after elaborate precautions, drank it, aware of a steadily growing thirst. We joined the four Ninth Gurkhas, who had landed before us and who were now leaving us to cross the Shwelly to the northeast. The brigadier came up and said it was the worst bivouac he had ever seen. We agreed and stayed where we were. Messages coming in from India were very cheering. The two battalions were flying in faster than we had hoped, and another night would see them all safely in Burma. Meanwhile, the plans for our crossing of the Irrawaddy were worked out. Wingate was obviously determined to do things in a big way. He had tremendous resources, and in these first weeks used them lavishly like a child enjoying a new toy, though with a deep sense of his responsibility. Our crossing of the Irrawaddy was to be accomplished with the aid of supply drops and gliders. A plan to land a bridgehead force on the West Bank was abandoned, as the country was entirely unsuitable, and instead the landings were to be made on a large sandbank on the east bank between Katha and Tigyang, just south of the small village of Inua. The gliders would bring the boats and engines necessary for a swift crossing, and the entire force of one battalion and brigade headquarters would be over in a few hours. That night we moved into our first bivouac several miles nearer the river. It was rather an important occasion, as we were trying out a new drill, evolved because of its great simplicity, and designed to get us into position with the minimum of fuss. It was a complete shambles, men and animals straying all over the jungle until eventually recalled by some rather loud shouting. Mac went round muttering, This is hopeless. If we meet the Japs in bivouac, we're done for. He had been on the previous Wingate expedition and had bitter experience of imperfectly organised bivouacs. As a first tactical manoeuvre, it was not, I am afraid, very impressive, and we felt somewhat humiliated. That night, final details for the crossing were fixed up, and we set off rather late the following morning, aiming to march due west until a mile from the river and then strike south to the crossing place. At this juncture, Brigo and a wireless set disappeared. The thick jungle had apparently swallowed them up, and what was more disturbing, Brigo had on him an emergency message which had not yet been deciphered. I had the ciphers. For all we knew, this message might contain a complete change of plan, and we marched towards the river with the feeling that we were not quite in the picture. All attempts to contact Brigo failed, and getting into our stride, we raced through the belt of the open scrub down to the east bank of the Irrawaddy. 
Brigo rejoined us 12 hours later, guided by the flare path. A message was giving the OK to the crossing. By this time, we were suffering rather badly from thirst, and Doc White, fully aware of this, said we could drink the Irrawaddy water without bothering to sterilise it. We were surprised, but grateful. We filled our canvas chuggles and water bottles, and in the manner of Gideon's men lay down on the sand, drinking the river water in great gulps. The sandbank stretched nearly a mile down the river with a width of about 300 yards, closing the gap between the two shores, so that there remained only 600 yards of water to cross. The opposite bank rose steeply up into the jungle-covered hills, and the river wound in a great curve downstream towards Tigyang. We retired to a small patch of scrub, sat down feeling much refreshed and made our plans to cross. Jack Masters had worked out every little detail and was telling off parties. A platoon was to enter the village of Inua to the north and secure rivercraft. Two parties were ordered onto the sandbank, one to light the flare path and the other to retrieve the parachutes, while a third party was to stand by to work the boats. They filed off into the night and I settled down to some messages. News came in shortly from Inua. Rafts south of village, and the village itself was reported free of enemy. Our north flank was secure, and we were not unduly worried about the south. Brushwood was stacked in small bundles along the sandbank, a man at each stack ready to set a match to it. Then at nine o'clock we heard the Dakotas. They made their run up from the north and dropped the chutes fairly and squarely down the flare path. It was a good start, and we dragged the loads off the strip, rubber boats, marine gear, and a host of sundry items. The gliders were due in half an hour. There were three of them on single toes, and the first one appeared exactly on time. It cast off at about 500 feet flying north. As we sat in the bashers, we heard the whistle and hum of its fabric and saw it bank steeply at the north end of the strip, slipping to lose height and touching down with a bump on the sand. It seemed to have overshot, rather. The second one followed also overshooting, and I was down by the flare path as the third one came in. I was at once struck, as I think everyone was, by what appeared to be a big defect in these American gliders. They came in at a very shallow gliding angle, so that any slight overshoot would mean landing a long way from the strip. It also meant that a low approach was essential, and this was not always possible in Burma. This particular glider was coming in very low, so much so that I thought it would hit some Gurkhas who were standing about a 100 yards in front of the first flare. Yet it touched down some distance from the strip, Fortunately, the landing area was lenient to errors of judgment and all three gliders pulled up safely on the sandbank about half a mile beyond the strip. Two of them had bumped badly and only one was fit for snatching up. We were thankful that at least there had been no crashes, but our faith in gliders was not very much strengthened. On looking back, I feel we were asking far too much of these gliders and operating them under conditions which had never been tried out before or, as far as I know, experienced since. Expecting much, we were annoyed at less than the best. Carrying parties marched off up the sandbank and started unloading the gliders. There were large ranger boats and outboard engines, small boats, rope, petrol, oil. Somebody had thought carefully about this and we were grateful, but it all had to be carried half a mile to the place chosen for assembly. This was the beginning of our troubles. The massive engines were hauled, pushed, carried and rolled over the uneven sand. Even under the full moon, the men sweated freely and to the fatigue of the march was added the fatigue of aching arms and strained backs. The boat parties were ready to operate, and the first flight of troops were standing by ready to cross. Still away in the distance, the men were dragging the boats across the sand. Time was slipping by rather fast, and the night was not as young as we would have liked.
There were no reports yet of any Japs, but we did not feel secure. The little body of troops by the water's edge was growing, and we were compelled to hold up the fresh arrivals and send them back. As we waited, there came the sound of an aeroplane again. A Dakota appeared out of the night to snatch up the surviving glider. It made its run from the south, passing to the side of the glider, which could be distinguished by the lights on the posts of the pickup apparatus. The glider engaged and was lifted straight up, following the Dakota over the hills to India. It was a remarkable feat of airmanship. Inside the glider with the pilots was a strange cargo of passengers, some Burma traitor police we had caught a short while before, who had been drugged to keep them quiet in the glider. The first few boats reached the assembly point and were hastily put together. Smithy and a small party of Burma rifles pushed off to the other bank. We saw them reach the bank, clamber out and disappear into the jungle. We waited for an answer and soon over the walkie-talkie radio came the all-clear. There was no enemy and it only remained for us to cross. It was getting late now, but we reckoned we would be just over before dawn broke to reveal our movements. A spearhead of Gurkhas was due over first to hold and expand the bridgehead in case the Japs got wind of our activities. Then the first flight of brigade headquarters, followed in no particular order by the rest of the troops and animals. Troops and men were now being detailed off and the boats assembled in the bright moonlight. The first boatload of Gurkhas scrambled aboard, or rather tumbled, for the Gurkha has an inborn fear of water and is not seen at his best when confronted with a river crossing. The boat coxswain had great difficulty in preventing the boat from capsizing as the little men leapt in. There was a wrench at the starting rope, and the boat went chugging off into midstream. There was a splutter, the engine failed but soon picked up again, and the men tumbled ashore on the west bank. More boats had now been assembled and soon we had a fleet of them serviceable. I took over one myself and started off my glasses flying off my nose into the river as I pulled the rope. Halfway across, the engine died and the Gurkhas peered uneasily over the side. The engine spluttered into life again, once more faded. We reached the west bank in a series of short hops and the journey back with the empty boat was even worse. I eventually rowed myself in. What I had taken to be my very bad watermanship was now apparently general practice. Very few of us had ever handled these boats before, and soon there were only two serviceable boats left. There were dark mutterings about shear pins. Our troubles were beginning, and the brigadier, when he came to the beach to inspect the progress, was far from satisfied. He saw several boats floating downstream, out of control, and most of the others beached for overhaul, their engines obstinately inactive. He returned to the command post and sent a message to force headquarters, reporting slow progress. The next and final calamity was the animals. We could use every resource known to science, but having led the mule to the water, we could not make him cross. The animals were too fresh and the slope of the bank too gradual. Also, we had not in our training faced them with a river anything approaching the size of this one. The first method was to lead a horse down to the water. The horses were more amenable than the mules, and then drive the animals after it. They went in up to their knees and then turned back onto the beach. We tried catapulting them into the water. They were far too strong for us. We tried swimming them across. I got onto the back of one mule and swam him halfway across. As he was swimming strongly for the opposite bank, I let him go and came back. The mule covered three quarters of the distance, and then he too turned back. Dawn was now breaking over the river and the situation was becoming critical. We had not reckoned on having to cross in daylight and the brigadier asked for continuous air cover. Shortly after daybreak, the first flight of Mustangs arrived and roared low over the beaches. They were a most heartening sight. 
singularly beautiful planes, and to my mind, one of the finest aeroplanes the Americans have produced. They were Cochrane's boys, number one air commando. We must have looked rather like a crowd of trippers on holiday, dotted over the sand with fires rising as meals were prepared. The men on the beach were completely exhausted. They had been working now for 12 hours at a stretch and had little to show for their work. The transport officer of the Gurkha battalion was working with a kind of frenzy, realising, I suppose, how much this was his show. We knocked off for a short time to brew up and regain some of our strength. The planes were still overhead and we felt reasonably secure. Then we started in again. This time we tried towing the mules behind the boats and achieved our greatest success so far. But often the mules would pull the boat round until it became hopelessly out of control and, as a final indignity, hauling it back to the shore. Then the engines started giving trouble again. We'd got about 20 animals over, but that was only a small fraction of our total complement. The brigadier was very worried. The West Bank was dominated by the hills behind, and should the Japs catch us in the middle of the crossing, we would be in serious trouble. He then wrote out a message. Unless sufficient progress made by three o'clock, we will leave one column, a half of three fourth Gurkhas, on East Bank to operate with fourth ninth Gurkhas, and will proceed with the other column towards objective. It was a very hard decision, and the brigadier came down to the beach almost pleading with us to get the animals over. We procured a large raft, put two outboard engines on the sides and loaded it up with 12 mules. The weird craft pushed slowly out into midstream and the engines cut dead. We were faced with the prospect of losing 12 mules and their leaders. The raft began floating downstream with the brigadier shouting instructions at us. All attempts to start the motors failed and the raft finally came to rest on the west bank, about three quarters of a mile downstream. We tried a smaller raft and got this safely across on two trips. It looked as if we had at last achieved success. But the time was now past three, and the brigadier gave the order to cut our losses. The balance of brigade headquarters and the 30 column were to cross as quickly as possible. 40 column, the other half of the battalion, and all the mules that had failed to cross were to remain behind. This last was our greatest blow, for without mules we could not carry heavy weapons, and we were losing some of our best animals that had been with us all through training. Maggie, of course, had swum straight over and must have had a very low opinion of the others. One other of our stalwarts was drowned in the crossing. It was evening when the last boatloads of men pushed off. I saw a native canoe and persuaded the Shan to take me across. I was gratified to discover that I could make myself understood. There were no Japs nearer than Katha and Tigyang. British troops had come here last year, he remembered the first Wingate expedition. We grounded on the far shore and I paid him two rupees for his trouble, a sum I afterwards discovered was shamefully low. We assembled in gloom on the west bank and counted our mules. There were about 30. The total complement of one column and brigade headquarters was 100. Then came the dismal task of gathering equipment. We kept two wireless sets, but the rest had to go overboard for lack of mules. We had to choose between Vickers machine guns and three-inch mortars and decided to keep the mortars. Flamethrowers were out, following the other equipment into the Irrawaddy. Some sank, but others floated downstream, disappearing slowly in the direction of Tigyang. We moved into bivouac, this time quite successfully a short distance from the river. We were dead tired and bitterly disappointed, each feeling in some way responsible for the debacle, yet conscious that we had been defeated by something outside our control. The operation had started with a fiasco. The world was waiting for news of us. Wingate, who had given us such lavish equipment, would be anxious about our progress. We had failed him, and he judged failure harshly. A savage message 
arrived, asking us to make urgent inquiries into the reasons for the failure of the crossing, with special reference to the outboard motors. We brewed up and sat late into the night, filling in our demands for the first supply drop. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. 